Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We have come upon a passage this morning that is familiar, but stunning. And we, we just got done looking about how Jesus performs the largest public mi- miracle of his ministry. Now, he's done a lot of things before. He's, he's, he's healed, he's cast out demons, he's, he has calmed the storm, but... But but here at the very end, this is about the end of his uh, of his Galilean ministry. It's almost two years in, and he's already done two tours around, and he's he's he's, he's wrapping it up, and he, he's going to turn to Judea and the training of the disciples. We saw how he he, he sends the disciples out two by two in with uh, uh, the twelve uh, to to multiply his preaching and multiply his. Uh, uh, the works that would confirm the message that, that he's bringing. And, and right before he turns to, to, to Judea, there are these two miracles that are, that are sandwiched together. And they're connected together. I'm going to show you that. The Bible connects them together, even though they're two completely different miracles. And the first one that we, that we saw last week was, was how Jesus typically called the, the feeding of the 5,000. But that's 5,000 men. So, so we saw it's somewhere between 20 to 25,000 people. It's one of the largest public miracles that Jesus ever does in, in all, of his, all of his ministry. I mean, 20 to 25,000 people cannot deny what uh, what took place and he he turns to this to this uh, next scene where Jesus is is walking on the on the water and the entire scene both of these miracles together have old testament messianic markings all over them and we we saw the disciples in the in the wilderness place in in verse uh, 30 to 32 Jesus gives them rest after their labor and they're in the in the midst of the wilderness the the multitude gathers there as well Jesus has compassion on them like the great shepherd he he sees the people according to his mission these they're like sheep without a shepherd he turns to the disciples and the disciples, uh, you know, get the big britches because they've been able to do these things and says, hey, Lord, don't you think you ought to shut the teaching down and let them go get some food? And, and Jesus says, you feed them. And he uses it to teach them a lesson. And then the, really the crescendo of that passage is the scene is the miracle where the Lord is the provision in the desert. He provides this unlimited supply of messianic bread. And it's a... It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's amazing. He's the, he's greater than, than Moses. He's the, he's the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. He has greater compassion, greater power, makes greater provision, brings greater satisfaction. They're, they eat to their field, and then there are twelve baskets left over. So we saw last week how Jesus is the promised shepherd. Now how does that connect to, to, to this miracle? Because clearly it does. Look at verse 45. Because it says immediately Jesus made the disciples to, to get in the boat. And look at verse 52, because here Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly ties Jesus walking on water to the feeding of the 5,000. It says, the reason that they were utterly astonished, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were, were hardened. For whatever whatever Jesus is trying to re, was trying to reveal to the disciples in the feeding of the five thousand, they didn't get it, and this miracle is connected. 
And if they would have got the feeding of the 5,000, then they would have clearly understood what was happening whenever Jesus came to them in the, in the, on the water. The disciples don't recognize him because they fail to grasp the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. And this miracle is, is unmistakable. And whatever this miracle was, whatever this walking on the water represents, in a specific way, it's, it, it's, it's tied together. And it's a major revelation about Christ. It's not just Jesus walking on the sea as if that's something small. I mean, that's, that's massive. These two miracles, when you put them together, they're, they're, they're to remind us these are the kinds of things that the God of the Old Testament does. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who provides manna for his people, and he is Yahweh who strides over the seas. In his very presence, the I Am, treading upon the sea, goes to pass by the disciples in all of his glory, and rather than hiding the disciples in the cleft of the rock, he gets in the boat with them. And whatever happens in this miracle, Jesus transcends all other categories with this miracle. All other categories ever used to describe him up to this point, a teacher, a prophet, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, he is none other than I am in this, in this miracle. He says so with his own lips. And all of this is to prepare the disciples to understand what's coming at the end, right? I mean, what's coming at the end they need to understand that this is not some feeble or frail teacher who is overtaken by Jewish treachery or the power of Rome and, and succumbs to the cross. This is, this is the Lord over death, over demons, over disease. He, he makes bread from heaven. He walks on the waters. It's not that he's unable to resist Rome or unable to resist the cross. The cross is the plan. That's, that's why he came. He submits to the Father's plan, and he dies in, in your place. All of these little building blocks are a revelation of Christ to the disciples and to others, leading them up to the point of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection, and then Pentecost, because they're going to proclaim this same Christ to the world, just like you are proclaiming that same Christ to the world. Well, Clay already read the passage for us. It's from verse 45 through, through 52. And I want to show you the, the outline that we're, that, that's laid out here very clearly in the text. The shepherd, the shepherd from the, the miracle of the loaves and fishes is the I am who walks upon the sea. And the first scene that you see there in verse 45 and 46, kind of the introduction, is the endangerment on the shore. There's a, there's a danger on the shore. The danger is not in, in the boat with the disciples or the, or the sea. The endangerment's actually on the shore. And Jesus gets them out of the danger and escapes himself. There's the epiphany on the sea. There's the appearance of God on the, on the sea in verses 47 through, through 50. That's the, the walking on the water part. And then there's this, this, this conclusion, this explanation of the heart that's given in verses 51 and and 52, whenever Jesus gets in the boat. Amazing, amazing passage. Let's look at this first one, the endangerment on the, on the, on the shore. And, and there are three things I think that you need to see in these two verses. There are three things that Mark brings out. There's, a, he, there's how Jesus dispatches the disciples, then he disperses the crowd, and then he departs to the mountain to pray. Look, if you would, at verse 45. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida 
while he himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And this introduction gives the real danger of the, of the story. As I said, it's not the wind of the sea. The real danger is the enthusiasm that, that's been created by Jesus doing this massive public miracle, twenty to 25,000 people. It, at this point, his popularity reaches a crescendo. It's, he's got this massive crowd. He's just fed thousands of, of people. And you know that the crowd returns the next morning following the miracle, and, and, and they want breakfast, and, and they don't just want that. They also want to take Jesus by force and make him king. The Gospel of John tells us that very, very clearly. And Jesus fears the disciples are going to get caught up in this messianic rebellion. So he hurriedly puts them on a boat and he launches them out. And then he disperses the crowd and goes to the mountain to pray. It, it, the, the word that's used in Matthew 14 for, for him uh, putting the disciples into the boat, it, 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 it's, a, it's a word that means to force or to demand. He, he forces the disciples into the boat. He takes them from the crowd, he puts them in the boat, and he, and he, sends, them, he sends them away. He makes the disciples get in the boat. It's always the boat, Peter's boat or whoever. They're very familiar with this boat. They've been in this boat quite a bit. And Jesus understands, as he puts the disciples, he makes the disciples get in the boat, that they're, they're way too weak and they're way too susceptible for the situation. This, this, the, the enthusiasm of the crowd. I mean, think about it. We've already been through this with the disciples. They have been wondering for some time why the crowds are so small. Why is it just me and Jesus and these few disciples in the kingdom? The kingdom wasn't growing as it was anticipated. You remember Jesus gives them the parable of the soils to explain evangelism. I mean, what's happening? Why are you being rejected by the religious leaders? Why are they sending the people up from Jerusalem to declare that whatever you're doing is by Beelzebub? And Jesus gives them the parable of the soils. It's, it's, it's not the seed, it's not the sower, it's, it's the heart. But now the crowd comes. And the disciples are thinking, finally, finally it's going to be, I mean, this is it. This is, this is uh, the soil has received the seed. This is what it's supposed to be about. But Jesus knows the hearts of the people and knows the hearts of the disciples and that they need to be protected from what their eyes see. So he forces them in a boat and he, and he sends them away. Can you imagine their thoughts? I mean, they're blown away by picking up the 12 baskets full and they see this, this, this excitement. And Jesus grabs them and puts them in the boat and, and sends them away from the, from the crowd. Don't judge the kingdom by what your eyes see. Or the significance of the crowd. It's not always punishment when numbers aren't there. Sometimes it's God's protection when numbers aren't there. When he protects you from the, from the crowd. He protects the disciples. He dispatches the disciples. And then, he, and then he disperses the crowd. Look at verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And while he himself was sending the crowd away. So he puts him in the boat, he sends the crowd away. Now, I don't want you to miss that this is just as dangerous for Jesus 
from a temptation standpoint than it was for the disciples. The disciples can't handle temptation. You and I can't handle the same temptation that God can. So he protects us. He sends them away. But, but this is a temptation of, of Christ. Where is Jesus? Where, where are they at? They're in a wilderness place. They're in a desolate place. This is the second temptation that Jesus goes through. You remember in Luke 4, when we were all the way back, when the, the Spirit drives Jesus after his baptism into the, into the wilderness? And after Jesus overcomes the temptation, Luke 4 says, And Satan departed for a season. Well, here he is, he's back. And yet this time he returns in the form of a, of a crowd and a crown. And Galilee was a, was a hotbed for, for zealotry. You, you remember that one of the disciples is Simon the Zealot. We talked about this before, the, the, you know, the zealots are the, are the freedom fighters, or they're the terrorists if you're, if you're a Roman. They hated Rome, they swore a, an oath to overthrow it. And the zealots' headquarters is right here in Galilee, far away from Jerusalem. And, and it, was, it was a place called Gamla, called Masada of the North. They even had their own, their own money. And on one side of the coin it said, for the redemption, and on the other side, holy Jerusalem. I mean, these were, these were radicals, and they're part of this crowd. In fact, that, their little fortress in Gamla is in sight of where the feeding of the 5,000 took, took place. They're, they're, part of this, they're part of this crowd, and they see the miracle, they experience the miracle, and, and they say, here's our king. They want him to be the head of their rebellion. Listen to how John chapter 6 talks about this. This scene, John 6, verses 14 through 15. It says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign that he had performed, they said, Truly, the prophet who is coming into the world. Truly, this is the prophet who is coming into the world. Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain. There's the temptation. Take you by force, put you on our shoulders, and, and, and you, can be, you can be king. I mean, think about it. I mean, he's been doing the tours in Galilee. There's not that many people in Galilee. There's twenty to 25,000 of them here. They've heard or seen about the demons being cast out, the, the healing. They've heard about Jairus' daughter in Capernaum. They, they just experienced the, the unlimited bread. What better king to lead a rebellion against, against Rome? They think he's the prophet. Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, a, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on, on the day of the assembly. Listen, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I die. I mean, the people are asking for a prophet to be raised up to speak to them so they don't have to, to hear the, the voice of the God, hear the voice of God. And the crowd recognized his power, but they never recognized that part. They never recognized their, their need. They truly recognized Jesus as the prophet who was come, who had come, but, but they, they should have recognized their, their need for repentance. Let the prophet speak or, or I die. If I hear directly from the Lord. But, but this prophet is the Lord. There's no recognition of the crowd for, for the need of repentance, which is the evidence that they, they didn't see who Christ really was. 
Many people, many people want a Christ that meets their needs but makes no demands upon them. Many people. But anyone who truly recognizes Jesus for who he is will first go the way of John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then they'll see who he is. So Jesus disperses the crowd. But notice where Jesus goes after he disperses the crowd in verse 46. And bidding them farewell. Mark doesn't tell us how he gets rid of them. Bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And I want you to notice it's the mountain to pray in verse 46. Now Mark doesn't tell us which mountain in Galilee, but, but that's not the point of the, of the article. It's another mountain from Israel's past that, that you're supposed to, to think about. The scene of Jesus going to the mountain to pray is, is to set your mind for the miracle that's, that's, that's coming next. I mean, this is the introduction. It, it, think of it like for those of you who used to work children's ministry when they used to have these things called felt boards. Anybody remember felt boards? Think of this statement like the Betty Lucan's background on the felt board. And Jesus is getting ready to put the... Put the people on it in a minute. This, this is to set your mind. He goes to the mountain to pray. It's an allusion to, to the mountain in the Old Testament, wherever it might be, Exodus 24, 15 through 18, and many other places, where God's servant, in Exodus it's Moses, ascends the mountain to, to meet with him. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Now think about all of this. Is going. These two miracles are connected together. They missed what was going on in the feeding of the, of the 5,000. And whatever this new revelation is, it's to help them get what they missed the first time. And what they missed the first time was, was the Lord in the wilderness providing bread from heaven. And now Jesus disperses the crowd right after he feeds the people in the wilderness with messianic bread from heaven. Now he ascends the mountain to commune with God in prayer. And from this place he sees the disciples and he intercedes for them. Look at verse 47. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them, straining from the oars. He sees them from the mountain. He goes up to the mountain to pray, and he sees them. What was he praying? He's praying for the disciples. He doesn't tell us that, but I think that's pretty evident. Jesus doesn't have any sin himself he needs to pray for. He knows what the disciples are getting ready. He put them in the boat. He knows what they're going through. He can see them. Jesus always intercedes for his own. What's he praying? He's probably praying like Moses. Oh, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. He's probably praying, if I found favor in your sight, consider too these disciples, your people, who are out in the middle of the sea right now. They're your people. I know they're sinful, but, but don't forsake your own name. He's, he's, he's interceding on, on their behalf. Did you know that he's interceding? He's praying for you this very morning. Did you know that? The God of all creation is interceding on your behalf this morning. We sang about it. My name written in his wounds. 
He's our great high priest seated in the heavenlies. He's the advocate with the Father. That whenever you sin, the marks of the slaughter are still upon him. He is our great high priest seated in the heavenlies. And he is also our sovereign God who comes to us in our, in our need. He goes to the mountain to pray for the disciples. He intercedes. He ascends the mountain. You know what else Moses prays in Exodus? 33:15 If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here, for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Do you remember when Moses prays that? It was after the people had sinned, and God says, "I'll go before you, Moses, but I'm not going before these people. They're sinful." And Moses prays and says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from, from here. And then Jesus descends the mountain as the very presence of God and goes before the disciples. Here's the epiphany that's, that's on the sea in verses 47 through, through 50. There's a situation of the disciples... There's the sight of Christ, both the sight that Christ has and then the disciples seeing him. Then there's this salutation of God, what Jesus speaks to them. Verse 47, it says, When evening had come, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. I love it whenever God pokes liberals in the eye. And that's exactly what this passage does. The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. That's just a mess of the minds of liberals to try to make it harder to explain away the miracle. I mean, you can't have Jesus alone on the, on the bank and the disciples in the middle of the sea four miles away and this not be a miracle about how he gets from point A to, to point B. And there's been all kinds of of explanations that take more faith and wrangling than the story itself. I mean, here's a few. Jesus wasn't didn't really walk on the water. He was walking along the shore, and there was a mist that obscured the disciples' view. Four miles away? <laughs> Jesus was wading through the surf near the hidden shore. That's what one liberal commentator says. Another one says Jesus was floating on a raft. Another says Jesus was walking on a hidden mud flat that, that reached out into the sea. I mean, Jesus, in their minds, is performing some, you know, some teenage trick. You've ever done that? You went to the, you go to the, the lake or wherever, and you, you find a, a rock in the middle of the, in the middle of the water. You stand on top of it. And you, hey, guys, you know, hey, how's he doing that? that? That's what Jesus is doing here, right? No. Mark says the boat is in the middle of the sea, four miles away, and he was alone on the land. People go all around the barn three times to try to explain away the supernatural nature of the Bible and the deity of Christ. It's harder to believe some of the nonsense that's out there to explain away God than to take the Bible at face value of who Jesus is. You know why they do that? You know why they do that. Because if he is God, then they have to deal with him. And they also know that he'll deal with their sins. That's the purpose of rationalism. It's the purpose of evolution, psychiatry, whatever. Rationalism that explains away the miraculous. It's to explain the way the existence of God. 
to salve the conscience that's inflamed in sin. And also the deep-seated reality that God has placed in every human being's heart that, that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. If there's no God, there's no judgment. And if Jesus doesn't walk on water, then he's not divine. And if he's not divine, then I don't have to deal with him and he's not going to deal with my sin. That's exactly why they do it. And yet it's abundantly clear in all four of the gospel writers, every single one understood that this is a miracle and they write it in such a way. It's kind of like Genesis 1 where he overemphasizes in the morning and the evening of the day. It's like, how can you get clear that these are six literal days? It's abundantly clear. Jesus is alone, and they're in the middle of the sea. And Jesus walked atop the, the sea to, to get to them. And when the evening was coming, verse 47, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them... Straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And it was about the fourth hour of the watch of night. Now remember, it's night. More deity here. It takes deity to get him, get to him, and it also, also takes deity to see them. It's dark. It's the fourth watch, which is about somewhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And Jesus told them to, to go to Bethsaida. And John says he told them to go to Capernaum, which is about a, about a four-mile journey if you go along the, the side of the, uh, of the sea bank. They're both on the east side, and Capernaum was on the west side. They're on the east side. Capernaum was on the west side, and Bethsaida is along the path. So these aren't contradictions. They're ultimately going to Capernaum, but Jesus says go around the, the bank by the way of Bethsaida. And under those instructions, they would have rowed along the shoreline to get there, but the wind begins to blow, and they're way off course. They're not on the shoreline. They're out in the middle of the, of, of the sea. And they're in a 25-foot wooden boat headed into the wind, and that can be hard, and they're not making any ground. In fact, they're, they're losing ground, and they've been at it for about nine hours. And Jesus sees them. Don't miss that. Seeing them. Jesus sees them. And then look at verse 49. And when they saw him, he sees them, and they see him. Two completely different reactions. And remember, he's up on the mountain, and they're in the middle of the lake. And it's dark. How can, how can he see them? The same way God sees you this morning, omniscience. The same way he sees the sins that you're hiding, and he also sees the deepest need of your heart or my heart. He has the ability to see. Darkness doesn't hide the eyes of God. God can see, and Jesus sees. And I love how for, verse 48, the, the end of verse 48, he came to them walking on the sea. I mean, just this, I love it. Just so matter of fact, he came to them walking on the sea. <laughs> he didn't just see them. He came to them. Do you know that? Notice that? Verse 48, seeing them straining in the oars. And at the end of the verse, he came to them walking on the sea. God doesn't just see you. He doesn't just see your heart. He doesn't just see your need. He condescends to you. He comes to you. You can never reach Him. The disciples could never reach Jesus. They're out in the middle there. They've been rowing nine hours. They're way off course. Remember the last time there was a storm that came, Jesus is in the boat with them and He's sleeping. And they're saying, Master, do you not care that we perish? And, and they, they wake Him up and He speaks and, and everything goes calm. Jesus is not in the boat this time. 
And he doesn't just see them. He comes to them. And they can never reach him. And God doesn't just see you. He comes, comes to you. He comes to us. He sees you. He comes to you. And you know what else? He gets in the middle of the mess of your boat with you too. I'm really thankful for that. Look at verse 49. The disciples see him. And they think it's a ghost or a phantom. Phantasma is where the word we get phantom. And when they saw him walking on the sea, he came to them walking on the sea and intended to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, how many times can Mark make it abundantly plain that he's not on a mud flat, he's walking on the sea. And they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. Let me give you the Greek translation of cried out. They screamed like a schoolgirl. That's the Greek translation of that word. <laughs> it really is. This is not the term, the, they, they, they thought it was a ghost. It's not the term for pneuma, like spirit. And this is a phantom. And they're terrified. I think the reaction's quite normal. Human beings don't walk on top of the water. They didn't recognize Jesus because humans don't walk on the water. But Jesus has already shown them he's not only human but but divine. And now he's not even not just going to show them who he is, he's going to tell them who he is. He's going to tell them who he is, the 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 person that they missed in the feeding of the of the five thousand. They cry out and look at verse fifty. For they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said, Take courage. It is I. Be not afraid. And then he got into the boat with them. And the wind stopped. Now, I know you all probably don't have this blessing. I guess this is one of the blessings that God gives me of, of you know, having to do the work in the text. But, but after you study this passage for a while and you dig into it and you break it down, it begins to get this image begins to form in your mind. And you're, and you're walking along in all this context in Mark and you're seeing how the disciples respond to Jesus, how he responds to them and... In this this passage, immediately when they scream, Jesus speaks to them and says, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he gets in the boat with them. Do not fear. I am. And he got in the boat with them and the wind stopped. Now just take that in for a minute. You've been rowing for nine hours. It's dark. It's somewhere around, you know, between three and six in the morning. You're way off course. The master's not with you. He told you to go somewhere. You're not getting anywhere. He's been away from you for nine hours. You're straining against the wind. The wind's getting harder. And you look and you see somebody coming on top of the water, a person. You think it's a ghost. You scream. And immediately you hear a voice that says, Take courage. Do not fear. I am. And then that same person gets in the boat with you and the wind stops and the sea turns glass. Yeah. Wow. 
I didn't address this back in verse 48. But notice what it says when he came walking to them by the sea. He intended to pass by them or pass them by. There's a lot of interpretations. Jesus was going to walk by them to see if he could recognize them, if they could recognize him and call him to get in the boat. Hey, there's the master. Come help us. Or Jesus is coming alongside the boat. It's not that he's going to walk by it. He, he comes alongside the boat. And I don't think you can be dogmatic about this, but I, the interpretation that I take is I don't think it's a stretch. He intended to pass them by. He, he's the one on the mountain. He's the one on the mountain interceding on behalf of the disciples. He sees them. They miss that he's God in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. He intercedes on the mountain. He comes down from the mountain, and his very presence goes with them, and his very presence is going to pass before them. And as his very presence is passing before them, they see him. They scream like a schoolgirl, and he says, Do not be afraid. I am. And then he gets in the boat. I think it's a reference to his glory. And here is the I am and all of his glory passing by. Only the disciples are not hidden in the cleft of the rock. And Jesus doesn't pass by. He gets in the boat. I mean, all of this is Old Testament God stuff, folks. Jesus has done the miracles before. And they had the ability, the people from Jerusalem had the ability to say that he did it by the, by the devil. Or it was a prophet. But only Yahweh walks on the sea. Only Yahweh calls himself I Am. And Jesus is the God-man. He's the one who goes to the mountain to meet with Yahweh like Moses. But he's also the one that comes off the mountain, reveals himself as God, which is why he's the greater Moses. Moses goes up to meet with God and comes down with a radiant glow. Jesus goes up to meet with the Father and comes down treading on the sea and comes to the disciples that he sees where they're at. And he says, be of good cheer, take heart, I am. That's the hope we have, isn't it? The hope that we have is that Jesus is I am. And he came to earth and he got in your boat and he took your burden away. Look at the explanation of the heart, how he wraps all this up. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, in verse 51, and they were utterly astonished, is the way the New American Standard puts it. But, but it's utterly astonished within themselves. Exceedingly astonished within themselves. It's like, how many Greek words can I, can I pack together to, to say that, that they're, they're just... They're freaked out. I mean, they just don't know what to say. They're speechless. Now, I want you to notice in the previous storm that we went through, he commands the wind and the sea to show that he's God. Peace, be still. It goes like glass. And now his very presence of getting in the boat, everything ceases. And the disciples' reaction would have been mine, yours, or I would have fallen like a dead man, utterly astonished within themselves. That's the phrase means. But I want you to notice verse 52, because verse 52, we get the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the commentary, uh, commentary on why they were utterly astonished. They were not utterly astonished because of everything that was happening. They were utterly astonished because they had not gained any insight, the insight that they should have gained. 
from the incident of the loaves. Their heart was, was hardened. Their response is clearly explained by the Holy Spirit. They were astonished because they did not get the insight from the loaves of the fishes that he was the Lord of manna. He was the one who provides the bread from heaven. And furthermore, this is not ignorance. This is rebellion. Their heart was hardened. That's what he says. It's it's not that they didn't have the information. They got the information. They were there. They picked up the 12 baskets. This is not ignorance. This is is hardness of heart. uh, The word indicates rebellion. And up to this point, hard hearts have only been used to describe Jesus' opponents. But now it's his disciples. And they're described here in one other place in in Matthew as as hardened heart. It's also interesting that Mark uses heart singular, emphasizing the corporate nature of the disciples' response. There's not one of them. Their heart was hardened. The, The entire group, the whole group possesses a hard heart. They possess a hard heart as a group. Despite their unique calling, the twelve as fishers of men, despite their privileged instruction, the parable of the soils, you get more insight because you're receiving, despite their commissioning as apostles or sent ones, despite that they've had delegated authority, miracle-working power, they do not understand because their hearts are, are hardened. And if that's not terrifying to you, it should be. Because if they have a hard heart or have the capability of have a hard, having a hard heart, how much more susceptible are, are we? I mean, you think after, after how many ever years you followed Christ or how many ever years that you read through the Bible over and over and both of those things are wonderful, you think that your heart is immune from hardness or rebellion? You think you've gotten better? That somehow your flesh has, has improved? Take a look at this passage right here. The disciples have heard the words of God from God's own lips daily. They've seen Jesus with their own eyes cast out 2,000 demons. They saw him calm storms on the sea while they were in the boat to the point they're petrified. They saw him raise a little girl from the dead. Three of them did. They were the ones that brought him the, the five crackers and the two small fish. They watched him hold it up into heaven and bless it. And then for twenty to 25,000 people give unlimited messianic bread. They themselves gathered up 12 baskets of food just 12 hours earlier. And they refused to believe what Jesus was saying about himself. And they cannot perceive what Jesus is saying about who he was. Humble yourselves, brothers and sisters. You've not arrived yet. Neither have I. You know what the disciples need? They need more teaching. And you need the exposition of the Word week in and week out to keep your wicked hearts from straying to the extent that you get away from the Word, to the extent that you get away from God speaking to you on a regular basis and you placing yourself under the Word and placing yourself under the Word and letting Him expose you and letting Him convict you and letting Him heal you. To the extent that you do that, this is exactly what your heart's going to become. The problem is not out there in the storm. The problem is within the disciples' hearts. And they don't need more practical how-to-do ministry They need exactly what God 
says that you and I need, the depth of the word, a, a, a clear view of who Christ is. Week after week, day after day to build you up in a strong faith because the world is constantly conforming you, pressing you into the mold. And you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as the world is pressing in, something's got to be pressing out. The disciples here are like Israel of old, disbelieving. Israel walked through the sea and they still rebelled against God. They watched Moses go to the mountain and the mountain was filled with lightning and smoke. And they still rose up to play and made a golden calf at the bottom. You think you're better than them? You're not and neither am I. And Mark doesn't point out their failure to make them look bad. It's to give us hope. You know what the hope is? Because these same disciples that failed over and over and over are the very bunch that Jesus uses to launch his church. And they become the faithful servants. They're the ones that will bear the witness that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And look at verse 53. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on pallets of those who were sick. And the palace, the place that he heard that he was, and whenever he entered a village or cities or countryside, they were laying sick in the market, imploring him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many touched him were, were being cured. And Jesus won't be their king. Jesus knows the needs of their heart, but that he's still a compassionate and gracious Savior. It's a summary statement, turning point in the book of Mark. And Jesus is going to point out the further problem in the Pharisee's heart, chapter 7, whenever we get there.